Thank you for subscribing to the Unamended Christadelphian Audio Archive Podcast. For more exhortations, classes, Sunday school lessons, and study guides, please visit our website at www.christadelphianaudio.org. Yesterday we got to the very beginning of the seventh chapter of this uh, wonderful epistle and considered only the first three verses. There are perhaps a couple of more things that we might say in this connection. Um, The name Melchizedek means my God is righteous. And so therefore he says that it is first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And that is the order in which things come, first righteousness, then peace. We pointed out further that in the third verse, when it says, without father, without mother, without descent or genealogy, as the revised version has it, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. And this, of course, is the most difficult of all those verses. Uh, What the apostle is talking about in particular is the priestly order of Melchizedek. We said uh, that that order of priesthood does not come by natural descent, but rather by divine appointment. And so it was that Melchizedek was priest of God Most High by divine appointment. And as far as his priesthood is concerned, there is no end of it at least up to the present time, as there was an end to the Aaronic priesthood. So he says, it doesn't mean that Melchizedek was immortal, but rather his priesthood abides or continues. He says, now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So therefore, if indeed the theory that Melchizedek was Shem is correct, and there's good evidence that it is correct, we see then that Abraham acknowledged the superiority of Melchizedek. And uh, therefore uh, gave him a tithe of the spoils that had been taken. But the apostle is building up an argument to uh, prove his point in the minds of the Hebrews who naturally look to the Levitical priesthood as the divinely ordered priesthood. And, of course, it had been divinely ordered up to the point when it fulfilled its mission. 
So he says in verse 5, And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, the Mosaic law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. And so all Hebrews, of course, priests and other people were descendants of Abraham. And so uh, they took, uh, the Aaronic priests took tithes of their fellow Abrahamites, we might call them, or Hebrews. But he whose descent is not counted uh, from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And clearly Melchizedek could not be considered as descended from Abraham because he was pre-Abraham, shall we say. There were no Hebrews in Melchizedek's day other than Abraham or maybe certain of his children, direct children. And the promises we know are uh, ground rock of the truth. And Abraham had received the promises. Now the argument is, verse 7, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. In other words, when someone receives a blessing, uh, it is only fitting that it be from someone regarded as a superior. And here, men that die receive tithes. That is, the Levitical priests. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And certainly this is confusing because as we read it, it sounds as though Melchizedek is still alive. But his priesthood is still in uh, order. He, uh, then in verse 9 he says, And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In other words, Levi wasn't even born at the time when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And therefore, if Abraham uh, paid tithes to Melchizedek and Levi was uh, subsequent to Abraham, then Melchizedek clearly had priority in priesthood. And now, uh, here is where he introduces then this concept and explains it, that there is a priesthood superior to the order of Aaron, or the Levitical priesthood. He says, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, and of course it wasn't, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. So therefore, 
the Aaronic priesthood was superseded, and superseded for good and logical reason. And this was a key point. He says, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Can you see then how he is cutting the props, as we would say, out from under the Mosaic law in which the Hebrews trusted? Uh, if you don't have a Levitical high priest, then the law is not effective because that's what the law demanded and required. It says, For he of whom these things are spoken, namely the quotation from the 110th Psalm, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Under the law, no one but a descendant in the line of Aaron could fill the high priestly office. He says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, a different tribe from Levi, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. There is nothing in the law that speaks of a high priest from the tribe of Judah. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude or likeness of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, carnal meaning fleshly because it was by fleshly descent that Levitical priests became priests, but after the power of an endless life, for he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, again, the props are being cut out. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Thank you, Norm. In other words, along with the disappearance of the Aaronic priesthood goes the disappearance of the law in which the Hebrews trusted. And it says because of the weakness and unprofitableness of it. It says, for the law made nothing perfect or complete. And what was the weakness of the law? It was, as Peter said at the council at Jerusalem, when they were debating the matter of whether the Gentile converts should be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, he said, Why uh, do you put a burden on them which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? So the weakness, of course, it was a divine law, wasn't it? And Paul said to the Romans uh, that, uh, he witnessed that the law was holy, just, and good. The weakness lay in human flesh. It could not keep it, and therefore it didn't bring anything to perfection. He says, however, in verse 19, But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which hope, of course, we draw nigh unto God. 
Excuse me. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest is added, is put in there for to help to make it clearer. For those priests were made without an oath. In other words, it was a matter of fleshly descent and didn't depend on a divine oath. But this, that is, this high priest, with an oath by him, that is, by God himself, who said unto him in the 110th Psalm, The Lord swear and will not repent. In other words, this is something that could not be changed. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This age-lasting order. By so much was Jesus made a surety or guarantee of a better testament or covenant. And they, speaking of the Levitical priesthood, truly uh, were many priests. And the reason, of course, was uh, that they didn't live forever. They died and had to be succeeded. As he says, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, namely Jesus, because he continueth or liveth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. It is one that shall not be changed. An interesting bit of the history of Abraham and Melchizedek, the symbol of it, was that when Abraham came to Melchizedek, Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine. Bread and wine, then, are the symbols of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And the, the significance of this, I think, we can see. So he says... Wherefore, or because of this fact, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, which come unto God by, and we must understand, through him, that is, through Jesus, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Again, we repeat, he said, no man cometh unto God but through me. For such an high priest became us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. In other words... The very fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated bore witness to the fact that they were not effective, except in a typical sense. Jesus' sacrifice was affected, <clears throat> therefore only effective, and only one sacrifice was needed. He also, of course, was the son of Abraham, made of a woman, 
made under the law, as Paul says in Galatians. And he also needed to be covered by the effects of his own sacrifice. For the law, that is the Mosaic law, maketh men high priests which have infirmity, and particularly such infirmity that they can't continue because they die, say nothing of the fact that they sin. But the word of the oath, that is God's oath, which was since the law, because the 110th Psalm wasn't written for several hundred years after the law was given, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore, that is, makes the Son high priest. This is a continuing argument here, regardless of the chapter breaks. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. In other words, this is the nub of the argument, we might say. We have an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And you remember we read back at the end of the second chapter where he points out that in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor or help them that are tempted. So he is right there where he can minister as priest most effectively, namely in the presence of his father. It says, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. And the word true is not in contrast to false, but true in contrast to type. Because the tabernacle in the wilderness was a typical institution, divinely ordered, but pointing towards something more complete than that. It says, which the Lord pitched and not man. What is the tabernacle in which God is to dwell? It's the same thing as the house that was spoken of back in the third chapter, where uh, the writer says, um, Christ, after a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. This is the true or anti-typical tabernacle in which God will be pleased to dwell. You remember Jesus said on the night of his betrayal uh, that if a man loved and obeyed his commandments, that Jesus would love him, his father would love him, 
As he says in John 14:21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. Skipping to the 23rd verse, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Christ and God dwelling with man. It's true the tabernacle does not have the complete form at present that it will have, but it does have a uh, existence in that sense. And this, uh, the pitching of this tabernacle or the laying of the foundation of this house is the work of the Lord. He continues in 8.3, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is uh, one of the principal parts of the high priestly offices. <clears throat> Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. He says, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, the Hebrews were continuing to uh, try to maintain the Mosaic ritual at that time. And, of course, they could only uh, be relatively ineffective priests, as contrasted with Christ, who, after his resurrection and ascension, is able to perform the high priestly office to perfection. So he says that these Levitical priests serve unto the example or type and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, this is what God said to Moses, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. In other words, Moses was given a very great revelation there in the mount, and he was told, of course, what was to be done. As we read in Exodus 25, God said concerning the Hebrews, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so the things were made according to the pattern or plan shown to Moses in the mount. It says, But now hath he, that is Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The promises under the Mosaic Covenant was that God would bless them in basket and store if they were obedient. Of course, the better promises uh, and the New Covenant are the Abrahamic promises. It is the Abrahamic Covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
Now, here there seems to be a little confusion. Uh, why does he call, if uh, Moses came along um, some 400 years in his ministry after Abraham, why does he call that the first covenant? Or as the promises had antedated that, well, the answer is, of course, that the covenants of promise had only been typically ratified. You may recall, as you can read in Genesis 15, how that Abraham was caused to fall in a deep sleep after he had taken sacrificial animals and divided the parts opposing one another, and a smoking lamp passed between those parts, which was a typical ratification of the covenant. But the very fact that Abraham was in a deep sleep symbolized that the ratification of the covenant was to come after Abraham's death. And if we turn to the 15th chapter of Romans, we have this confirmed. Where he says, uh, verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. In other words, to confirm the covenants of promise. And this he did in his life and sacrifice. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause will I confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And so therefore the Gentiles are to be included along with the rest of Abraham's true seed those who are Israelites indeed in the covenants of promise. We'll pause to switch tapes here. So therefore, he calls it in chapter 8, 6, a better covenant established on better promises. And it says that Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant. The law, we are told, was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And that mediator was, of course, Moses. So it says, if that first or Mosaic covenant had been faultless, in other words, if it had been sufficient to accomplish the purpose intended, the ultimate purpose intended, we should say, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, and now he quotes from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Most of them have not accepted uh, entrance into the new covenant, 
they're still hanging on to the old covenant as a people, and therefore a change has to be made before they will accept of the new covenant. We have, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. And we know how faithless they were even to that Mosaic covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And so the covenant that God made with Abraham, he will fulfill not only to those adopted sons, but to the remaining natural sons in that day. God's laws have not been in their minds and upon their hearts. They have rather chosen to follow their own ways and traditions and interests. But it will not be such in the kingdom age. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. In other words, it won't be necessary. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. What a tribute this is to God's forgiveness that in spite of everything that they seem almost to have conspired to do to thwart uh, God's commandments and purpose, he will yet forgive them. It's true, not the same individuals, but at least the members of that nation. <clears throat> then in verse 13 it says, and he's using this as an argument, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Obviously, it wouldn't be new if the other one weren't old. Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. If Usher's date for the epistle of A.D. 64 was correct, or is correct, then there were only about six years to run before it became impossible for them to keep the Mosaic law because the temple was destroyed, they couldn't offer the sacrifices, and the whole Mosaic economy came to an end because this was written, as we read earlier, Hath in, God hath in these last days, that is the last days of Judah's commonwealth, spoken unto us in a son. And it was decaying, waxing old, and was ready to vanish away. <clears throat> so in chapter 9, you know, we might even get almost through Hebrews by tomorrow. <clears throat> 
even though we're taking sort of a cook's tour of it. He continues, then, in other words, it follows from this, verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, that is, a sanctuary or tabernacle of this world made out of things of this world. It doesn't mean that it was wicked in the sense that we use the term worldly frequently. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. He's now describing the tabernacle in the wilderness. You know, it was divided into two compartments, the first one, the holy place, and the rear one, the holy of holies, or most holy. And these things that he is describing, of course, as we said, were the uh, in the uh, first part, the part where one would enter normally. And after the second veil, the tabernacle or sanctuary, which is called the holiest of all. In other words, there were two veils, were there not? There was one at the entrance to the holy place, and interestingly enough, the veil there was supported on five pillars, which could very well typify the five books of the law. The second veil that he speaks of, or what is commonly called the veil, was supported on four pillars, which may be typical of the four Gospels, you see. Then, describing the contents of the most holy place, he says, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And, of course, over the mercy seat, between the uh, figures of the cherubim, which were cast integrally with it out of gold, was the glory that shone the light over the mercy seat, symbolizing the presence of God in their midst. It says, now when these things were thus ordained or set up, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. In other words, this was the daily service that took place in the holy place. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year. And of course that one time was on the Day of Atonement, the day in which uh, symbolically the national sins of the people were put apart, set, uh, set apart, sent away into the wilderness figuratively, in the scapegoat. And the children of Israel, as it were, started out the, for the next year with a clean slate. 
course, it didn't stay clean very long, as we well know. So, uh, the daily operations in which the high priest and the common priests could enter uh, was only that first one. And only the high priest could enter into the most holy place. It says, not without blood. He didn't dare enter without it, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. In other words, there were sacrifices made, and the high priest took this blood in with him. And he did certain things with it, such as sprinkling it before the mercy seat and on the horns of the altar. Uh, excuse me, before the ark, I meant to say, and on the uh, horns of the altar. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, that is, that which symbolized the presence of God, was not yet made manifest or open, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, one did not have as direct access in any sense to the presence of God that he has now, as we shall see later. But when Jesus expired on the cross, we know that the veil of the then sanctuary or temple was rent, so that the Holy of Holies was exposed, symbolizing then that the way into God's presence had been opened. So he says, which was a figure for the time then present, in, in, that is, the tabernacle was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect or complete, as pertaining to the conscience. And we know that the conscience is all important in God's sight. Uh, I forget whether it was in this or the uh, Sermon on the Mount class, we talked about the fact that what is in the conscience is, after all, the most important thing, uh, because the law provided that if a man killed another accidentally, he was not held guilty, and provision was made that he could flee to a city of refuge, and he could not be delivered up to the avenger of blood. On the other hand, if he did kill the other person intentionally, then there was no safety for him at all. He could not be uh, seek that sanctuary in the city of refuge. So therefore, the thing that is important in God's sight is what affects our conscience. So he said concerning these sacrifices, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal or fleshly ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. In other words, a time of change 
when something new was to be introduced. But Christ, being come an high priest of the good things to come, through, I'll read it, a greater and more perfect, complete tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building or of this order of things, neither through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And, of course, the for us does not belong there. It's in, in italics showing that it has been added. Because he also needed redemption, as do his brethren. Some would try to deny that, but we've already seen several places here in Hebrews indicating this. He obtained eternal redemption first for himself. As we read uh, that the high priest was to offer first for himself and then for the heirs of the people. He is the only one that has yet obtained eternal redemption. The others will at his coming. So the writer argues, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer and that refers to the red heifer, uh, the means of purification for sin that you can read in Numbers 19, which is a beautiful figure, though it may be a little difficult to interpret. Strengthening the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. In other words, they, they sanctified in a typical sense. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, purge or cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, of course, we must understand that though the blood of Christ is spoken of in the scriptures, it doesn't speak of the blood as a magical type of thing. And I notice downstairs in your uh, library you have some copies of Brother Robert's little pamphlet titled The Blood of Christ, which I believe I referred to before. I urge you to buy out the supply that they have and possibly order some more because it's probably the finest thing that has ever been written on the subject of the atonement in Christadelphian literature. So, the blood of Christ course, stands for the whole thing, that is, his sacrifice, which was first and foremost a living sacrifice before he became a dead sacrifice. But that sacrifice culminated in death, and that's what blood stands for here. Now, it says, through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without spot um, or as the margin in this particular version says, without fault to God. When, when was it that he offered himself without fault? It had to be as a result of his life, did it not? 
That was the time when he overcame all temptation to fault, to disobedience. Now he says that the blood of Christ, or that which Jesus showed us by his example, he showed us how men should live. This can cleanse our conscience to serve the living God far more effectively than animal sacrifices could ever hope to. And so, uh, as Paul says, be ye imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. His life, including his words and deeds, are the things which cleanse our consciences to serve the living God. So he says, and for this cause, or because he has done this, he is the mediator. Mediator, of course, means the go-between. The Aaronic high priest was the go-between between God and the nation of Israel. He was Israel's representative to God, and in a very true and, and though typical sense, God's representative to the nation. In fact, in his regalia, he had the golden crown on the turban, which read, Holiness unto the Lord. And therefore we see what a beautiful type the high priest was of Christ, who was indeed holiness unto the Lord. So he says, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament or covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So therefore, his sacrifice was effective not only for those who come after him, like ourselves, but even for those who were under the first covenant and who offered only these typical sacrifices. And therefore, uh, those who are God's children of all ages, whether uh, Mosaic or Abrahamic covenant age, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because the promise was to Abraham and his seed. He says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Uh, in other words, speaking of a testament, we still use this term legally. We speak of the testament or the last will and testament of someone who has died. He says, for a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. <clears throat> Again, the New Testament or covenant was not confirmed until after the death of Christ. 
Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. <clears throat> in other words, in God's scheme of things, the shedding of blood, <clears throat> of course, excuse me, which we know symbolizes death, either uh, of a human or a sacrificial animal. This follows through consistently down through the two covenants. <clears throat> then he says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined upon you. Moreover, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by or according to the law purged or cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. So therefore, the act of sprinkling the holy apparatus, if we might call it, of the Mosaic worship, and the people themselves showed the necessity for them to be uh, cleansed through the blood of the covenant. In that case, of course, it was the Mosaic covenant, but this was merely a type to point to the uh, blood of the everlasting covenant. And, of course, in coming into that covenant relationship, we identify ourselves with Christ's offering by submitting to a ritual death. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And, therefore, we, we must die before we can enter, even though the death may be only symbolic. And I want to close then with this reading from the sixth chapter of Romans, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace, that God's mercy may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And how do we become dead to sin? By submitting to a ritual death in baptism. And it has to be an intent to die to sin, otherwise it is not a baptism, it is only an immersion. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life.